The only way for you to be holy is to receive the gift of holiness, to receive the gift of salvation. But these people were self-righteous. That's what self-righteousness is. It's trying to achieve a righteousness by self, by the things you do, and that will fall short of the glory of God. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we have moved into chapter 10, which is the part of the letter that deals with the nation Israel. In the previous chapter, Dr. Brogy noted that Israel had been God's chosen nation, and he looked at the implications of being chosen. In today's message entitled, Close But Not Close Enough, Pastor Brogy will look at the holiness of God and the state of man and discuss the vast distance between these two points. We'll see that regardless of how good and obedient to the law man could ever be, it will always fall short of the glory of God. Take your Bibles, would you? Turn to Romans 10. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through Romans for the last two years. And it's rightly often been called the Constitution of Christianity. And today in that Constitution, we want to focus on the simplicity of salvation. And one truth that we discover in today's passage is that it's very possible for a person to come to the very edge of salvation without ever finding salvation. It's possible for a person to know the plan of salvation without having ever met the man of salvation. It's possible for a person to be close to being saved without actually being saved. On one occasion, if you remember, it's recorded in Mark 12, the Lord was confronted by a scribe, a lawyer, a teacher of the law. And he came and he asked the Lord Jesus, what was the greatest of all the commandments found in the law? And if you remember, the Lord quoted the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord, he is our God. It's quoted every Saturday, every Sabbath, and has been for some 4,000 years in Jewish, among Jewish people. And so the Lord quotes that portion of the Shema in Mark 12, 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then the lawyer, if you remember, responded with actually a very good answer. And he affirmed what Jesus said. In Jesus, in response, when he saw that he had answered intelligently, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So here's a religious, well-respected, well-educated teacher of the law who apparently knew much truth. He was not far. He was near the kingdom, but he was not in the kingdom. So what does it mean to be not far? Well, it means you're close, can mean you're very close, but you've not yet arrived. And so the Lord Jesus, as well as our passage today, teaches that it's possible to be near the kingdom without actually being in the kingdom. This man was outside, not inside. And if one dies outside of the kingdom, he dies eternally lost. And there are many people who are just like him. Some who think they're actually in the kingdom when they're actually just close to the kingdom. Some who are very close to entering the kingdom and actually never step in. 
The famous baseball player Frankie Robinson once quipped, close doesn't count in baseball, close only counts in hand grenades and horseshoes. And that could be said of the kingdom of God. Close is not close enough. You must be in the kingdom. So let's read our passage. We left off last time in verse 4, but I want to begin reading with verse 1 so we have a running start into the context. Follow along, would you? Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Like last time, the message is very, very simple, but very, very important. And if you're in the sound of my voice today, and you are not absolutely sure that if you took your last breath in the next minute, that you would definitely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, be in heaven, then you need to listen very, very carefully. This message is for you. And assuming you are absolutely sure for the right reason, because many have a false assurance, But assuming you are sure for the right reason, this message is for you. It's an equipping message. Remember, he's not writing to those who are lost, but those who are saved. He's equipping them as he describes Israel's state on how to be more effective in bringing people into the kingdom of God. And all of us have loved ones and friends who need salvation. So we need to listen very, very carefully. And if perchance you are not far from the kingdom, and you're only near the kingdom, then ask God to give you ears to hear today. And if perchance you actually think you're in the kingdom and you're not, let God test your salvation. Test yourself to see if you be of the faith. Put your thoughts up against the thought of Holy Scripture to see if it's real. Now let's pause for a moment and set the context. First, the broad context. If you remember, Romans has three critical divisions the doctrinal section in 1 through 8 where God's righteousness is revealed, the national section in 9 through 11 where God's righteousness is vindicated, proved, demonstrated, and then at Romans 12 through 16, the practical section where we see the righteousness of God applied. So we're in the national section here in Romans 9 through 11. It's not a parenthesis in the book of Romans. He had just finished at chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And of course, the logical question would be, but what about Israel? You said you love them with an everlasting love. You said they would be your people as long as there was a sun in the sky and stars in the heavens. It seems like you have forsaken Israel. And so God deals with the people of Israel in 9, 10, and 11. In chapter 9, if you remember, he deals with the fact that Israel, bring up the chart, he deals with Israel's past election, that out of all the nations of the world, God chose the people of Israel to bring 
Messiah. Salvation is from the Jews. And then in the 10th chapter, he deals with their current rejection. Why is it that Israel is in unbelief? And then what we'll see in the 11th chapter, that God is not done with the Jewish people, that God still has a plan for the Jewish people, that God is going to restore Israel. In fact, he used Israel to bring about the first coming, and he's going to use the people of Israel to bring about the second coming of Christ from heaven. And he's already begun that process. He's laying the footwork. So here we are in chapter 10, where we move from Israel's past election to their current rejection. Why were they in unbelief? He came to his own, John wrote, but his own received him not. The vast majority of Israel and virtually all of their leadership said Jesus was an imposter, that he was not Messiah. Now, tens of thousands of Jews responded. Everyone converted in Acts 1 through 7 is Jewish. All the apostles are Jewish. But the majority of the nation were in unbelief, just as the prophets of the Old Testament predicted. Remember, there are two comings that are described in the Old Testament. His first coming is a suffering servant, where he would come and die and provide a way of escape from the wrath of God, where we could be truly forgiven. The second coming, where the government would rest on his shoulders, where he would be a sovereign king. And of course, if you've been under the oppression of Rome and under the oppression of Gentiles since the days of Nebuchadnezzar, then you would want certainly the second picture. And because the Jewish people had become so self-righteous, they didn't see their need for a savior. And they only wanted a sovereign ruler and Jesus didn't meet that expectation, so they rejected him. Remember how the chapter begins. Let's zoom in here on the immediate context. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Uh, the Phillips, a paraphrase done in the 50s in England, said, my brother, my brother is from the bottom of my heart, I long and pray to God that Israel may be saved. Now, please notice two truths from the opening verse. One, Paul believed in the possibility that any lost person could be saved. And secondly, he had a zealous concern for the lost. Now, we've spoken a lot about the doctrine of election in the last several months. And let me just say this, wherever you come down on the doctrine of election, and I know it can be a divisive issue in some churches, but wherever you come down, if your understanding of election has robbed you of your zeal to win lost people and to pray for them, then you have a misunderstanding of the doctrine of election. Paul's heart's desire, udokia is the word desire. You could translate it, my passion, my good pleasure, my deepest satisfaction. Paul is saying, one of my greatest satisfactions in life would be if my Jewish brethren could come to know Jesus as Lord. It's a profound statement, especially when you consider what the Jewish people had done to the Apostle Paul. He'd been stoned, beaten, forsaken, humiliated, ridiculed, scorned, shunned, hunted, hated, and yet he had no resentment in his heart, no bitterness. You would think he would say, God, I've witnessed and I've witnessed and I've witnessed to these people. They've had their chance. God, just let them go to hell but not this great apostle. He said, I would find nothing more pleasing and satisfying than for these people to find Christ. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Did they need peace? Of course they did. Did they need to survive under the struggle of Rome? Of course they did. 
Did they need deliverance from the hatred that they experienced as a race and the great injustices that they knew even in the first century? Of course they did. But that was not Paul's primary concern. The Lord Jesus puts it all in perspective when he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? In other words, world peace means nothing if you die and go to hell. Being educated, being prosperous, seeing justice on the earth is meaningless if you've never found the forgiveness of God. And the evangelical church has lost its perspective. We think issues like global warming in politics are more important than preaching the gospel, and they are not. The first and highest and holiest call that God has put on every saved person is to glorify Him, and you do that, among other ways, by telling about Him, by going and reaching a lost world with the gospel. And the only way to change a nation is to change the individuals in that nation, and they need to be changed one soul at a time. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Look at verse 2. For I testify about them, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They're zealous, but it's a misdirected zeal. There's a lot of people like that in our day. They're zealous even about religious things, as these Jews were, but it's misdirected. People all the time say, but they're so sincere. They're so devoted to their religion. Surely God is not going to send them to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. Listen, sincerity never saved anyone. Jesus saves doesn't matter how sincere you may be. A sincere person can be sincerely wrong, and he can be lost forever. And the proper word really for zeal without knowledge, for commitment without reflection, for enthusiasm without understanding is fanaticism. These people were zealots of sorts. They were fanatics. And so verse 3 explains, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. This verse plainly says Israel, in the context, though elected as a nation, was being rejected as a nation because they sought to establish their own. And the thinking Christian would ask, their own what? Well, contextually, their own righteousness. They refused to admit their need for salvation. They refused to believe in the God who would ultimately judge sin and condemn sinners because they were self-righteous. So he explains in verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Please understand, when a person works for his own righteousness, he is not submitting himself to God. He's not submitting to the righteousness of God. To refuse the plan of salvation, grace alone through faith alone, is rebellion. Understand that it is rebellion. God says it is a non-submissive spirit. Why is that? Because you have to go against either what you know to be true in Scripture, what you've read in the Bible, or even if you've never read the Bible, you have to go against the very dictates of your own heart because when the Spirit of the Lord came, He came to convict men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so it says here that they have knowledge but their knowledge is an incomplete knowledge. They have a zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge. They know about God all right, 
but it's an incomplete knowledge. And when God describes their lack of knowledge here in verses 2 and 3, He's not saying they are ignorant of God's existence. They were monotheists. He is not saying that they were ignorant of God's law. They studied it all the time. Their, their scribes were brilliant. They expounded the law of God. They had those prestigious titles of master and rabbi. But they were still ignorant. They had a zeal but not in accordance with knowledge. Now, I noted last time there's two words for knowledge that are used in the immediate context. And the word that Paul uses here is the word gnosis. And typically, not always, but typically in the New Testament, the word gnosis is used to describe intellectual knowledge, but not a heart knowledge. And by contrast, Paul uses a different word, a second word for knowledge, when he speaks of what they don't have. There's knowledge in the Bible, and then there's what the Bible calls epigenosis, true knowledge. For instance, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3 um, that there are certain people who had a true knowledge of God. Well, here Paul says they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with, and he uses the word epigenosis, not in accordance with true knowledge. They don't have a true knowledge of God. They don't have a true spiritual perception and understanding. Paul uses the same word when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, when he speaks of lost people who are always learning, but never coming to the epigenosis, the knowledge, or you might paraphrase it, the true knowledge of the truth. They learn, but they don't really learn. They hear, but they don't really hear. They see, but they don't really see. They are ignorant, not because they haven't been exposed to truth, but because they are rebels against the truth. There are many people like that. You just can't talk to them. You try to talk to them. You give them the facts, but they just don't get it. Why? Because they are rebellious at heart. And so God is not talking about IQ here. He's talking about HQ. He's talking about a person's heart quotient. And these religious Jews had memorized the law. They knew and ascribed to a set of rules, but they had no real living relationship with the living God. Why? Because they had chosen facts over fellowship. They had chosen religion over forgiveness. And so he describes their righteousness as being incomplete. He tells me why in verse 4, why their righteousness is incomplete. Notice, for Christ, he says, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, what precisely does that mean when it says Christ is the end of the law? It cannot mean, as the antinomists of our day says, who's against the law, who says you can get saved and live however you want. It cannot mean the termination of the law. The moral law of God is eternal, still has full application. Paul says what we couldn't do in Romans 8 because of the weakness of our flesh, God did by sending his son to die for us. Why? That the requirements of the law, Romans 8, 4, might be fulfilled in us. God saved you by grace through faith. He saved you not by works, but he saved you to do good works. Some, not all in Reformed theology, take this phrase in their commentaries to say that the end of the law refers to the end of Israel, that they are no longer the custodians of the law, that God is now done with the people of Israel. That misrepresents the unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham. 
There were some covenants in the Old Testament that were conditioned on obedience, and some of the blessings came when you followed them. But there are other covenants that had nothing to do with man. Just like in the New Testament, there are some promises that are unconditional in nature. God's going to fulfill them no matter what. There are others that are conditional promises. And so to say that God is done with Israel is to not deny Jeremiah 31 that as long as there's a sun and a moon and a star in the skies, God will be committed to Israel. It denies that. It denies the unconditional covenant of God. And it denies the overall context of Romans 9 through 11. Now, Paul has been hammering home all the way through Romans that the law cannot save, that the law pointed to Christ. As Paul says in Galatians, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. If you remember at the end of Romans 3, he says, so it is, a man is not justified by works, but by faith in Christ. And then in Romans 4, he proves that, illustrating with both Abraham and and David, two of Israel's most highly esteemed people. What shall we say, Abraham, our father, according to the faith is found? He asks. Was he saved by his works? Well, Paul says if he was, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. And then he says, what does the scripture say? He goes back to the authority of the Bible, sola scriptura. The Scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And if you remember when we studied that verse, there's New Testament commentary on it in Galatians 3, that on that day when God brought him outside of his tent, he preached the gospel to him and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham, as Jesus said, saw my day and was glad. And so all of the Old Testament types, all of the pictures, all of the illustrations, all of the prophecies, the whole of the Old Testament, sometimes designated just by the law, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not everyone who behaves, not everyone who tries, but everyone who believes. Now that brings us into our context into the immediate passage today. We want to look at verses 5 through 11. And in 5 through 11, he gives us three characteristics of the Hebrew people in his day as to why they miss Jesus as the Messiah. And you could take these same three characteristics and apply them today as to why people miss Jesus as being Lord. If you're taking notes, there's an outline there in your bulletin. Three simple points. The first is found in verse 5, that achieving God's righteousness is impossible. It is impossible to achieve God's righteousness. Look now, if you will, at verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. That is, in the Old Testament, Moses tells us that if you want to get right before God, if you want to go to heaven then, and you want to do it the law-keeping way, then you better obey the law perfectly. The man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. God is absolutely holy. And if you are ever going to meet God in heaven, then you must be absolutely holy. And again, we studied in Romans 4, David and Abraham, that neither of those men were saved by works, but by grace alone. And so we're not surprised that Moses in the first five books spoke about salvation by grace repeatedly. And we're not surprised that all the way through the New Testament epistles that he's quoted to prove that. If you remember, for instance, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, 
Paul quotes Moses in Deuteronomy 27. Let me read it to you. Paul says, For as many as are of the works of the law, paraphrase, for as many who are trying to get into heaven by the things they do, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's Moses. That's Deuteronomy 27, 26. The law demands a flawless life because God is flawless. The law demands perfect obedience from the cradle to the grave. But none of us are there. Listen, if you could take all 7 billion people on earth and extract the finest quality from each person and somehow distill them into one person, it would still fall woefully short of the glory and perfection of an absolutely holy God. The only way for you to be holy is to receive the gift of holiness, to receive the gift of salvation. But these people were self-righteous. That's what self-righteousness is. It's trying to achieve a righteousness by self, by the things you do, and that will fall short of the glory of God. So going back to Moses, going back to Genesis, the first book in the Bible, Paul says here in verse 5, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Now, you can try to convince yourself in your own mind that you and God, you know, you're okay. People tell me that all the time. You know, God and I, we've got this understanding. You know, he, he respects me and I respect him and, you know, I'm okay. And you can manipulate the standards and readjust your thinking away from the Scripture and you'll find yourself someday in hell. It's an awful thing. And people all the time manipulate the standards. I was reading this week of Dennis Lee Curtis, who was arrested in Rapid City, South Dakota, for armed robbery. And Mr. Curtis had a set of moral scruples about himself, about his thievery. In fact, in his wallet, he had a list of things that he had written called the robber's rules. Let me read them to you. He said, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. I will not take cash and food, I will take cash and food steps, no food stamps, no checks. I will rob only at night. I will not wear a mask. I will not rob many marts or 7-Elevens. If I get chased by the cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. I will only rob seven months out of the year. I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. So he had a sense of morality, but it was a flawed morality. And when he stood before the court, his morality did not stand. He had to stand under a higher morality by the higher law of the state. Likewise, when we stand before God, your morality will be based on God's morality. And when you recognize that, then you say what Isaiah says when he says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Not our bad deeds. But our best deeds in the eyes of an absolutely holy God are like filthy rags. You say, but I feel good about myself and people speak good about me. When you seek God someday, you will only be able to say what the prophet said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To listen again to today's message entitled, Close But Not Close Enough, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you would like a CD or DVD copy, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. Do you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy? You can do that Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we continue our look at Romans chapter 10. Join us then as we search the scriptures.